we are uh, spending a few weeks looking at the resurrection event and contemplating what it means for the rest of our lives, that it doesn't just get located in one Sunday, but the Christian calendar intentionally uh, labels the next number of weeks as Easter Sundays that are meant to then be lived into the ordinary time preceding Advent. And so how does what happened, what we talked about and celebrated on Easter, how does it change the way that we live, or does it? And that's what we're trying to answer looking at Colossians chapter 2. And really, if you are interested in meditating continually on the cross, you could obviously do that by looking at the events as narrated in the gospel, but um, maybe read a chapter of Colossians every day. It's a relatively short book, but it's very uh, intense. It's very compressed with a lot of meditation upon who Jesus is and what He has done. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, roughly, um, Jack Nicklaus was the greatest golfer in the world. Now, this is Portland, so perhaps I should explain that golf is an outdoor sport where uh, you hit a white ball and you drive around in a white cart, and it's mostly played by white men. But we don't really play much golf in Portland. You have to drive out to play golf. And so I just want to make that clear, you know, so that you understood what golf is. I am kidding. I love golf. I don't ever play it, but I grew up playing it. And my dad is in his early 70s and still um, beats people who are good at golf in their 20s and 30s. He's, he's quite good. But Portlanders don't really think much about golf. But Jack Nicklaus was really really good at golf. And he had a fairly unorthodox yearly routine. He would take four months off in between the season. There used to be a much more extended uh, break in between the season than there is now. And he wouldn't practice. He wouldn't play. He wouldn't pick up a golf club for four months in the off season. And then every year before the season started, he would go down to Florida and he would spend time with his golf coach, Jack Grout, and he had this kind of yearly inside joke with him that was sort of funny but actually led to something that was real, and he would always say to Jack, Mr. Grout, would you teach me again to play golf? This is Jack Nicklaus. This is like Tiger Woods, you know, saying, can you teach me again how to play golf? And Coach Grout would say, sure, I'll teach you again, and this is how you hold the club. And this is how you stand over the ball. And this is how far your legs are supposed to be spread. He had about six fundamentals for a golf swing. And that was it. And so every year, Jack Nicklaus would revisit just the fundamentals of a golf swing as if he was starting over. Now, can you imagine the greatest golfer in the world going and asking someone, can you show me how to hold and grip the club? Tell me how to stand over the ball. What they both understood was that to be the best in golf, you don't have to run after the latest technique or the newest method or have the newest tool or implement. You just need to know how to do the fundamentals better than anyone else does the fundamentals. Now, 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Colossians, is often thought of as this philosopher, theologian who makes Christianity far too complex. He overcomplicates Christianity with all of these big words and big concepts and all of these categories that he systematizes a relatively simple faith into something that we still argue about and divide over today. Most of our debates are Pauline in nature. But I would submit that over and over, what Paul does is rehearse the fundamentals. He rehearses the very basics of the gospel. It's as if his readers don't have a very good memory because he keeps going back to the very same thing, as if you will never leave this. You will never get beyond this basic storyline. And the storyline for Paul and for the Bible is that there is this radically loving healing, liberating God, who in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus opens himself up to humanity's need and binds himself forever in love to his creation and to his people. And so Paul's letters, far from being just treatises of systematic categories, What he's writing, friends, is pastoral letters. These are very earthy letters. And they're full of what I would consider to be theological stories. We're not used to thinking about the epistles, Paul's writings, as narrative, as as stories, but they're full of stories. They're just smaller. He says things like, you once lived according to the flesh, but now you live in this way because of this event that's happened. He storifies the gospel. Your old self has been put off, and now you have this new self that you live out of. There's so much story and drama and invitation into the story that God is writing for his world. And this story hinges upon, in verse 6, being in him or with him. And these two kind of parallel concepts he mentions seven times in six verses. He says, In Him, that is Jesus, the fullness of the deity dwells. And you have come. You see story, movement. You have come to fullness in Him. In Him you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. You were buried with Him in baptism. And you were raised with him. And God made you alive with him because God triumphed over all of the rulers and all of the authorities that were over you. He triumphed over them in him, with him, in him. And notice all of the action verbs. verbs. There's movement here. There's drama here. Look at what happened. And now find yourself in that story. That's what Paul is inviting us to do. There's a famous quote by Alistair McIntyre, who was a philosopher, writer in the 20th century. And he wrote a lot about what is the story that we're living by? What is our moral story? That is, we being the American culture, Western culture. And he says, I can only answer the question of what am I to do 
if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself part of? I can only, the, only answer the question of what am I to do, how am I to live, what decisions am I to make, if I can first answer the prior question of what story am I a part of. And what he claims is that you have a story. It's not that you need a story. You may need a different story. But what he is saying is that we are all living by stories. The question is, is the story or stories that you are living by, are they good? Are they benevolent? Are they true? We can't help, you see, but narrate our lives in in some way. There's some sense of the good and the noble and the honorable that we're pursuing. There's some sense of quest that we are on with our lives. And those help us make decisions. Those are the, the stories that we tell ourselves that we make our daily decisions by, that fill out our calendars and our, our email. The, the birth and the life, death, resurrection story arc of Jesus, which is the hinge point, really, of the whole Bible, what we celebrate at Easter is not simply, you see, just an event that happened. We believe that it's historically true and that it happened, but, that, but that, that's not entirely the point. And that the resurrection is far more than just a theological reality to defend and to describe, but that the resurrection is something, something closer to divine art, that God is sort of painting a picture for us in flesh, inscripted, dramatized in the world, and saying that this is who I am. If you want to know God, look at the storyline. Look at what happens. The incarnation, Good Friday, Easter sequence, it acts out, you see, God's love for humanity. But more than that, in Him, with Him, it binds us to that story. And those who recognize the story, those who receive the story, that love, that story is now your story. It's my story. And that story is meant to give meaning to all of the little stories we are living. Tomorrow when you wake up and you go to work and you have your agenda, in some way that larger story is meant to kind of underfill that story, be the foundation of it and to direct it in, in some way. All the way from the career that you choose, the spouse that you choose, down to how do I respond to this daily setback? How do I respond to this guy that ran me off the road or cut in front of me in traffic? That somehow, Good Friday Easter is meant to help us learn how to respond in a Christian resurrection way to those big and little things. And to fail to recognize that is sort of like an actor who shows up on set and they know their lines for a particular scene, but they haven't read the whole script. They don't know the storyline. And how can you act if you don't know the tone and the drama and where the story is going? And a lot of us know the script. We know the theology. We've got it all in check. We've got our books on the shelves. 
well-marked and underlined and highlighted, but we don't know where the story is going. We don't know how to take that book down and actually inhabit it in life. So what's the script? What is the story? What's the drama? I've said it in a, a bit of a way. But if you want to go back and read it kind of in a more full treatment, read chapter 1 of Colossians because Paul reviews it before he gets to verse 6. And he says that he says that in a very hymnic way, a lyrical way, a poetic way, he tells us about how Jesus, he is the firstborn, this new being, not that he was created, but as he is born, he is born into a creation of a whole new world, and that Jesus is the firstborn over that world. And that the fullness of God as Jesus is born and becomes man, becomes human, the fullness of God dwells in him. And that God in Jesus is choosing to reconcile humanity, which is up to that point alienated from God, and chooses to make all of those who recognize and receive the story holy and perfect and without blemish in him. And that's the script, sort of. That's the tone. That's the drama that Paul then connects to in verse 6. So then, just as you received him, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. That that is the fundamental basic script, this story. And that you can, in a sense, overcomplicate things. That you can add and backfill a whole lot of things that don't make the story better, but clutter it and make it harder to live. And what Paul is saying here is, just as you've received Jesus, continue to live in response to God's action of irrepressible grace that we see acted out in Jesus. You see, what Paul is saying is what you could never do for yourself, what you could never teach yourself, what you could never accomplish yourself. That is what he was doing in Jesus for you. Now, back to golf. Golf is notorious for having these gadgets and these tools and these learning implements that people spend a lot of money on after they slice a couple of drives off the tee and they say, I've got to fix this. I've got this little hiccup in my swing. Or there's closets full of them because non-golfers buy them for golfers on Christmas and they don't know, you know, it just says, help your swing. And no self-respecting golfer would use something that someone else bought for them on Christmas. I've tried it with my dad, believe me. But they, it's notorious for these infomercials. There's a, there's a golf swing shirt that's like a straight jacket, so when you swing, you can't pull your arms a- apart. There's a, a putter with a club head that's so large and square that you can set it on the ground and it stays standing up so you can back away from it and read the green. You don't have to have anyone else do it, and you don't have to pretend like you can read the green. You know, the first time you're on the golf course, I love seeing that. And then there's a product called Hot Biscuits, which is a portable golf ball heater 
Because in winter months, when golf balls get cold, this company claims that if you carry around this little portable battery-operated heater, that if you heat the balls, they'll go 16% farther, or your money back. And then there's the Euro Club. Not E-U-R-O, but U-R-O, the Euro Club. Anyone know where I'm going here? Urology, Euro Club. Well, see, most... Golf courses, no, one, no one's following me, huh? Thank you, Scott. Most golf courses you see, they have these beer carts that travel around, and you can buy beer just about as often as you want. But they only have a few restrooms around the course, and so you can't do your business as often as you want. And so what happens is that you see guys having beers, and then they walk off the course into the bushes to do what they need to do. Well, you follow me here? The Euro Club solves this because this club looks like a golf club, but you don't swing it. The club handle is a reservoir of 20 ounces. And so it, uh, this doesn't serve my illustration in any way, by the way. I just, <laughs> I just saw this last night and thought, wow. I would almost rather see, you know, old dudes going to the bushes than I would see them using this thing. It's a little bit awkward. I hope I didn't give you an image you can't delete from your mind. But there are lots of teachers, lots of methods, lots of gadgets, lots of things that you can pay good money for that will fix your swing or your money back. And it's a multi-multi-million dollar industry. And what Paul is addressing in Colossae is that there are just a proliferation of spiritual techniques, gadgets, if you will. There's just so many methods that the Christians at Colossae, the new Christians, are feeling a bit of anxiety because they are in this place where everyone is trying to sell them something. Everyone is trying to say, try our method and you will be a better Christian in 60 days of your money back. All of these guarantees, and, and more than that, there are these sort of infomercials that are saying, if you don't buy this product, if you don't adopt this method, well, you're going to be like the guy on the golf tee that is hitting it off into the lake with the big red circle and the X between it, not the good-looking you know, golf guy that hits it perfectly straight and just looks back and sees his epic drive. You want to be that guy, not the, not the guy over here that hits the ball in the lake. And what they are saying is that it's not just, hey, here's a method to try out. Here's a new technique. But if you don't adopt this manner of being Christian, then you're missing out. Then you can't possibly be a follower of Jesus like you say. And so the Colossians were thought of as simpletons. They were thought of as arrogant also at the same time. Because they said, no, I don't think so. We're going to stick with Jesus. We're going to stick with this simple gospel story. And we're not going to participate in all of these complex rituals. Paul encouraged them in this context, continue to live as you have received Jesus. In this very simple gospel story, live with freedom, foregoing sort of the conventional spiritual wisdom of the day. He's telling them, break the rules. 
Break the rules of your community and live as the gospel informs you to live. And this is so interesting to me because the the knock on Christianity in our culture is that it's very moralistic, it's very rulesy, it's very judgmental. But what Paul is saying here is exactly the reverse. Do not let anyone judge you. This is verse 16. Did we print that? No. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, a Sabbath day. There was all these complex ancient rituals that the Colossians were being pressured to amend to their routine, to their spirituality. And he says, when you, don't, when you choose not to do that, don't let anyone judge you. Don't worry about being judged. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, exclamation point. Now, it sounds like Paul is saying exactly the opposite of what I'm arguing here because he's saying it sounds like there's a lot of dangerous things out there in the world. There's these, there's these parties and there's food and there's drink, there's drink and don't go anywhere near them. Just kind of stay back at church with churchy people and you'll be fine. It sounds like this separation mentality. Don't even taste those things. Don't sample them. Don't touch. But he's saying exactly the opposite. He's saying don't taste all of those arbitrary rules that have been put upon you. Say no to them. Walk away from them. Such regulations, that is, these religious regulations that have been added, amended onto the work of Jesus, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. To be really spiritual according to these parties, you were told that you have to give up something. Maybe it's food, maybe it's drink, maybe it's relationship with certain kind of people. You have to separate yourself from all of those things. And these rules had been in practice for quite some time. And so to say no to them was to go against not just conventional wisdom, but centuries-old spiritual wisdom. And then you fast forward 2,000 years to sort of our day, and we are often told to be safe, to be really spiritual, to really be faithful to Jesus. You have to avoid Certain kinds of books, certain kinds of movies, certain kinds of friends, certain kinds of work. And only then will you know that you belong. Only then will you know that you're okay with God. So you have to give up something or you have to take up something. These religious festivals, celebrations, Sabbath observances, there was all these things that the Colossians were supposed to do to be really spiritual. Now today... Same sort of thing, to be really spiritual, to be fully Christian, to be okay with God. You have to take up a certain political cause or perspective. You have to have and adopt the spiritual regimen. You have to have a certain parenting philosophy or perspective. You have to learn from and read from approved spiritual gurus that come from within our theological system and never from without. And that's how you know you belong, and that's how we know you're one of us. 
This sort of thing has been going on for millennia. And Paul is talking about here living out, embodying the resurrection, which does involve giving up, giving up our selfish claims on life, giving up our autonomy. And it does involve taking up, taking up the cross and saying, my life is now yours, Jesus. But according to Paul, and this might make us uncomfortable, this involves a lot of personal context and a lot of personal wisdom and a lot of ethical calculus to understand our own life and our own community and considering how our choices might affect someone in community. There's this famous passage in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul talks about if your actions cause a younger Christian to stumble in their faith, then the right choice for you is most likely to give up your liberty. But remarkably, the subject matter is meat sacrificed to pagan idols. And in general to that, Paul says, eh, no big deal. Eat what you want to eat. That's his general sentiment towards all of these dangerous things that are apparently vying for us and corrupting us from secular culture. He says, eh, just eat it. It'll be fine. Unless one of your close friends is a young Christian, it might cause them to kind of stumble and be confused in the faith. Then don't use your liberty to cause them to do something that they, want, they are not prepared to do. In other words, the life that you live out of the resurrection might look very different from someone else, even just down the pew from you, or even everybody else in the pews. And that's okay. That's actually good. And what we often fail to realize is that the most dangerous things to our practice of faith aren't the things that we know to be evil. And they're not normally the things that encroach upon us from outside, the so-called secular culture or the moral decline of our day. You hear Christians talking about this thing all the time. Historically, the time, in fact, that the church has been most productive and most flourished is those times where it's been most persecuted, where it's been illegal to be a follower of Christ. The danger to the church, the danger to your faith and my faith is not the slow creep of perceived secular decline of our culture. The danger is the slow creep of one-size-fits-all moralism within the church. It's the rules that you and I inflict upon one another, not allowing each other to be free, to be ourselves, to enjoy the liberty of the gospel. It's the kind of church that is threatened by diversity, by the diversity of gifts, of complexion, diversity of callings, diversity of practice. When those things are undermined in the church, then the gospel is really at stake. And as I said, it happens with things not primarily that are obviously evil. These things can oftentimes be benign or even good things that we make to be non-negotiables that are added to supplement the story of the gospel. And what Paul is telling us here is that when you supplement, you substitute. When you add to it, you don't just add to it, but you undermine it, you see. 
trying to be more spiritual and more devoted, we subtly and slowly start living out a story that undermines this story arc of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and our lives are no longer connected to it. And it's in those contexts where you begin to feel the walls encroaching, the walls are moving in, that you're not at liberty to be yourself. You're not at liberty to ask questions. And what happens is there's a very narrow band of spirituality that the church tries to be very good at and then looks outside to the world to find examples that they don't necessarily struggle with to say, you shall not. And this happens all the time. What happens is that we become compulsive about compromising our own rituals from which we derive our identity and our standing, and then we fail to recognize these gigantic compromises. Churches that are very judgmental about the sexual practices of others and yet tolerate greed and tolerate rampant anger and theological pharisaism. White Christians in the South in the 50s, 60s, really for many, many decades, who wouldn't miss a Sunday, who wouldn't miss a church picnic, but tolerated, participated, even defended the profoundly dysfunctional and sinful social arrangements of the Jim Crow South. But because they had narrowed down, and in fact the narrowing down adds and supplements and subtly undermines the gospel, they were comfortable with this world outside of just profound systemic sin because they had their own life in order. The story of Easter, when that story, that is the radical liberation from slavery, from the slavery of self, when that's supplemented by a list of unbending shalls and shall nots, what Paul says is it's not being supplemented, but it's being substituted for something else entirely. You're not just missing the point, you see, but you're living by a different story. One that isn't putting your life and the life of the world back together again. One that isn't living out a sense of benevolence because of God's benevolence to you. But it's deepening the division and the chaos that exists. But now doing it, you see, in the name of religion which is far worse. Paul, like Jesus, has the harshest words for those who want to lead people away by behavioral moralistic rules. And Paul has his harshest words who want to lead the Colossians away, telling them, hey, just take a break. You don't have to do more. He says to them, don't run. Don't walk. Don't move. Don't just do something, but stand there. Just stand there and receive the good news of the gospel as you are, not as how you will be if you do all of these rules, but stand there and say no to all of the encroachment of other people's ideas and other people's list of things that they're obsessively following and therefore think you must follow. Don't just do something, stand there. Receive 
You are in himness. Receive his fullness, his grace, apart from your effort. Because in Christ, it says, you have been brought to fullness. The new believer that became a Christian yesterday is just as in fullness as the person who has been following Jesus as hard as they can for 50 years. Stand there. Rest. Let Jesus love you as you are. Let's pray. Father, I pray that all of what we do here on Sunday morning would inform all of what we do as we move out of this building and into what we term as our regular life. I pray that the gospel, the community of faith, the Lord's Supper, that these things would be regular life. Not that we are here all the time, not that they make take up the bulk of our time during the week, but that they inform it that they change the way we go about our life. And I pray that as we come to the table, you would do that more and more inside of each of us. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen.